Good morning or good afternoon or good evening to everyone. Welcome to the health and wellness show on the SOT.net talk radio network. <laughs> Today is Friday, March the 10th. I'm your host, Tiffany. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Gabby, Hello. and Jonathan. Hello. Uh, Erica and Elliot could not be with us today, but don't despair. We do have a, a bona fide crossover and a bona fide millennial, a true perspective <laughs> crossover. <laughs> Shane is joining us here today in our studio. Hey, everybody. So today's topic is the millennial syndrome. Why they got to be like that? <laughs> so... uh I guess it's a, a tradition that the older generations kind of riff on the younger generations. You know, in my day, I had to walk to school in three <laughs> feet of snow. In this generation, they don't know anything. So we're going to be doing a little bit of that. We're going to kind of uh, try and get to the bottom of this whole millennial thing. Who they are, what their characteristics are, how they came to be, how they are. We'll ask a few questions. How do they develop their reputation and are they uniquely flawed or are they just a product of the times? So I guess we can go ahead and get started. But, you know, first, what is a millennial? Well, well, Tiff, you, you uh, at the start of the show, you said I was a bona fide millennial. <laughs> yeah, I may, I may take issue with that. Okay, well, <laughs> and, and I may be, I just don't know. I was born in 81. So, yeah, you know, yeah. does that make me a millennial? Well, the official uh, description is a person born between 1980 and 1994. But I guess that yeah. there could be a little bit of leeway here. And not to say that all people born during that time period are or have the characteristics of millennials in quotation marks. But... I don't know. I, like to me, when I read that 1980, born between 1980 and 1994, I was like, "What?" Because that to me seems really early. Like 1980, if if somebody was born in 1980, they're like 37 right now. Yeah. Like that's mm -hmm. that to me does not really describe a like what I think of as a millennial. Like I, you know, that's not too much younger than I am. And I thought I thought I was kind of I had a larger buffer zone between me and the millennial generation. <laughs> That's true. Um, the 80s, I, we're still a little bit healthier. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's, I would, I had always thought of like millennials as being like born maybe from 1990 on, but I don't know. Maybe I'm cutting it too short. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it's kind of ambiguous, right? I mean, uh, prior yeah. to all these generations, you know, there wasn't really, you know, you can go back to the baby boomer boomers, but before that, you know, was there any name for, you know, particular generations? I mean, not really. Not really. Mm. There, there were some, I was looking into it a little bit, and, you know, there were some uh, classifications for certain groups, um, particularly regarding, like, uh, people who served in the military during certain times. But besides mm -hmm. that, I mean, there wasn't really a set name for these identities. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, I think it kind of yeah. flows uh, into the, the whole identity politics development, which the millennials mm -hmm. are really the epitome of, I think, then result. Well, one of our chatters mm -hmm. says there were 
names for generations before the baby boomers. There was the lost generation, the GI generation, and yeah, the silent and, generation. But I think those all apply to, um, you know, it's it's not the whole generation of, of uh, you know, that age category. Uh-huh. I think it was Most of those I've never heard stuff. of before. Yeah. Like, yeah. when was the lost generation? Or the GI, GI generation, I guess, would be, like, post-war or during yeah. World War II, maybe? Post Silent World generation, I, I don't know. Yeah. Or Vietnam? Oh, maybe. So, when Is we say mo- millennials, are we talking about people with a particular set of characteristics or behaviors? Well, so, when, when we say millennial, you know, what, what do we think of? What, what do they represent? Are we what, thinking what of... Represent? Lazy, technology-obsessed <laughs> youngsters who still live with their parents for the most part. Yeah, entitled, yeah. lack of responsibility. Social precious snowflakes. warriors, precious snowflakes. With safe spaces, easily triggered. Selfishness. Me, me, mm. me, generation. If you want to bust out the, the generational definition and just look at this personality type, it's. I would say, like this started prevalently in the late '60s. The kind of entitlement, mm-hmm. you know, snowflake easily triggered kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think that started with the hippies. Well, it's it's interesting because yeah. I mean that was the baby boomers, right? And right. that kind of goes back to what I was uh, talking about earlier about this whole like uh, identity politics when it seemed to, you know, begin to emerge, and it did seem to. I mean, the the baby boomers. Re- represented more of a, a rebellion i think from you know the the older generations mm-hmm. and you know it kind of developed from there uh and you know it, it was an increasing separation from you know the societal norms i think mm-hmm. yeah and then i think you know a lot of the things that gen xers used to get accused of um seems to have become sort of more and more magnified as the generations go on. Because a lot of the stuff that millennials get uh, accused of, including like, you know, being narcissistic and me, 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 that sort of thing, the Gen Xers used to get accused of that all the time as well. So I wonder if there really is a clear delineation between these sorts of things. I mean, they, they are, like Shane said, they're arbitrary. You know, you kind of just throw a definition out there and you go, okay, that's, that's a millennial, that's a Gen Xer. But um, a lot of these trends i think it, it it did kind of start in the 60s with the once the hippies started raising kids um then you know it's it's kind of like you can actually see a marked trend in these sorts of things it looks like a development right i mean you know it, it the the current um the current outlet the current generation of, of millennials well i guess you, you could even say there's generation z after or why, or you know, whichever. <laughs> but um, yeah. it, it just seems like there's a progression uh, towards this very subjective uh, way of, of seeing and acting in, in the world. Mm. Like a developmental delay. Like pe- teenagers are usually very immature, and you're supposed to be more mature as you age, but that is not happening for a lot of people. And today's yeah. society actually <laughs> doesn't contribute for maturing so it takes mm-hmm. a malignant or a very peculiar flavor nowadays millennial mm-hmm. huh. yeah well i think that 
the older generations do kind of define the generations below them. But I wonder how is it that millennials define themselves? Well, it's kind of like the hipster thing. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you point out hipster and you talk to hipsters, but when you ask them if they're a hipster, they're like, no. I don't you know. know what a hipster <laughs> is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think there's some usefulness to the stereotypes, um, you know, but it's got to be done with a grain of salt, too, because there are a lot of people who just... They might dress or look a certain way because that's like what's fashionable right now, but that doesn't necessarily represent their line of force per se. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is some gray area. I I get real uncomfortable when we start to say like all millennials are a certain way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I mean, these, these are kind of like broad, it's a broad category and certainly not everybody in the generation is going to fit into all that category so easily. You know, I'm sure there are some like determined, hardworking um, individuals of that generation, um, and it is always, di- you know, you kind of risk painting everybody with the same brush. But, yeah. um, but nonetheless, there are certainly some trends that can be seen. Totally, right. yeah. and and I think you know we can look at it in terms of you know what the social force is, not necessarily uh, at the individual level, but you know what's happening mm-hmm. on a social scale. Uh, and, you know, I, I, people may fit in certain categories in one way or the other, uh, but in terms of a larger dynamic, you know, I, I think we are uh, moving towards this direction of being more entitled and, and you know, mm. selfish and, you know, just this, this very um, individu- individu- individualistic way of, uh, you know, seeing ourselves and, and you know, not regarding um, the it, – it's 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 a – deconstruction of society really i think because mm. you know the um the aims to you know emulate adults aren't there um mm. and you know the things that adults used to stand for you know which is like responsibility you know uh, taking taking on a job and you know accepting that that's kind of you know what you do when you grow up um growing up you know really isn't uh, a part of youth anymore Mm -hmm. and it's even Mm -hmm. it's even you know disregarded in adults you know in people older Mm -hmm. than than millennials we see these adults who are you know uh, trying to emulate the youth rather than you know the opposite i think Mm -hmm. this is the first time in history you know that 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 type of dynamic is happening on such a, a large scale you know so you know what kind of things does that have the, uh, or how, you know, how is a a young person supposed to handle themselves uh, in that type of world where you know they don't have uh, something to kind of rebel against because their environment is already reflected on you know a larger social scale. Well, so on that social scale, in other words, you're saying that most people, regardless of if they're a millennial or not are acting like children and yeah. do not grow up. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, it's the the whole millennial phenomenon isn't just within uh this millennial group, but it's it's a millennial society really. And you know, I think we we could see that not to get into politics too much, but uh, <laughs> um you know, we could really see that in, you know, during the this past election 
when, you know, it wasn't just millennials who were, you know, foaming at the mouth and, you know, screaming literally like children. You know, it was it was grown adults mm-hmm. who who weren't technically millennials, but really took on, you know, w- represented those uh, those characteristics. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of societal aspects and whether or not millennials are just a product of their society, there is a greater uh, economic uh, thing in the background. Like um, there was an article where it said that millennials have a 75-year record for the highest percentage of adults living at home with their parents. Now, mm-hmm. is this necessarily something that's unique to millennials because there's something wrong with them? Or is this a reflection of the really bad socioeconomic times that we're living in right now, where there are no jobs, yeah. where people are saddled with student loan debt, and we're in pretty much an economic recession, though people would claim that we are not? Yeah. It's a really difficult thing to tease apart, I think. Because, you know, on the one hand, it's quite easy to rail against millennials and say, you know, they have no sense of responsibility and et cetera, et cetera. And um, they're just a bunch of whiny cryberry babies who want to go to their safe spaces instead of taking on real, like, real adult um, responsibilities. But at the same time, it's, you can't say that there's the same opportunities there as there has been in previous generations. Um, I mean... You know, especially if when I remember, like, my parents were just completely clueless about the job market that I was going into. And they were kind of like, why don't you have a job? And it, you know, right out of university, it's like you, in those days, you graduated university or college or even high school, you walked into a career and you had that career until you retired. Um, that does not happen anymore. And it's even tougher for the kids out there now as when I was younger, because I could still find jobs. It was tricky, but, you know, I could, uh, you know, the market wasn't like it is right now, where unemployment rates are kind of through the roof. Um, so, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, you know, there is all this uh, sort of entitlement um, that this generation kind of has is like, a, like uh, almost defines them. But then, what opportunities are actually out there? Is it just that they aren't getting off their butts and getting a job, or is, is there actually no real avenue for them to go down? Or right, they're is programmed like- to have this dream job, and uh, and any other job is not acceptable. That's also another possibility. Like That's- for example, in Western Europe, you know, with the economic crisis in Greece, Spain, you know, people, young people, follow these careers, and then they don't find a job afterwards. But then you have all the fields that need work and people, you know, to work them and they will not, you know, lower themselves to do such a job. Well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like this, uh, closed feedback loop where, you know, they, they, they're not given the, the tools to, you know, face, um, the, you know, the, the difficulties of, of becoming, you know, an adult and, when those opportunities do exist, you know, it's, it's like they already, you know, it's, it's already a, uh, they close themselves off from it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, no, it can't go there. Uh, and I think because largely, you know, they don't have the tools. So it's like, you know, it feeds into itself. Sure. Yeah. I think well, that's a big part of it. And Shane, what, Shane, what you had mentioned earlier about, 
the transition into like adult responsibility. I think it's evidenced by the use of the word adulting, which is ah, very popular yes. now. <laughs> yes, I, I, I just came I across that. <laughs> totally adulting today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did some like dishes. I was doing some adulting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A tr- that, a, that kind of says a lot right there. <laughs> like well, taking on a respo- a responsibility is so unusual that they have to co- have this kind of clever verb for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this generation is slated to be the first generation to earn less than their parents over their lifetime. So I think hmm. the the economy kind of plays into it. And like that guy in that famous video that went viral was just saying that the rents are just too damn high. Maybe they can't move out of their house, out of their parents' basements and, you know, find a job and live on their own. But at the same time, they also don't have the skill set to actually pick them up themselves up by their bootstraps and do what needs to be done. That sense of entitlement and brightiness kind of holds them back from making Mm -hmm. their way in the world. And then how does that see how it's hard to go ahead, John. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, how does, uh, how does that tie into uh, the older generation's way of looking at, you know, uh, their children and, you know, uh, you know, does it feel good to, for, you know, the, the parents to actually, you know, on, on a maybe unconscious level to, you know, keep them at home and, you know, keep them as, you know, these babies mm-hmm. uh, who, who never have to, you know, go out into the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't have those, uh, those markers really where, you know, and I think, I think a lot of young people um, do on some level, you know, do want to have, um, you know, the experiences of, of going into adulthood but at the same time you know they have a very comfortable life where they don't have to so you know there, there's a, a type of mixed message there for them well that's where we can look at the parents i mean they're the mm-hmm. ones who gave them this yeah. comfortable life with a you know positive reinforcement and the helicopter style of parenting and you know telling yeah. their child that they're unique and special in order to make sure they have high self-esteem but the whole thing just kind of backfired in a way. Well, yeah. I mean, if you get an award just for showing up, then well, there's no incentive to ever actually try. And I think, you know, the whole progressive parenting thing, um, really, you know, a lot, of, a couple of the articles that we read kind of getting prepared for this said that it was basically a social experiment um, just inflicted on this generation called positive parenting, where... You know, you never give any negative reinforcement. It's all positive reinforcement. You don't, you know, get angry or shout and you try and be your kid's friend rather than an authority figure and all these, these kinds of backward ideas of people like, you know, never wanting to be a, the parents never want to be a bad guy and be some kind of authority figure. And I mean, I guess that kind of comes out of, um, the whole hippie thing with, you know, the anti-authority type, um, viewpoint. Uh, you know, they don't want to be, an, 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 you know, all these bad authorities out in, in the world doing terrible things. Well, I don't want to be an authority. I'd rather be my kid's best friend. And then the kid has no, um, you know, well, it's, it's a boundary issue, really. Um, and these kids, like, you know, that does not prepare anybody for the world out there at all. I mean, you need to take responsibility. You need to be able to 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps or something. You can't go running back to your safe space every time somebody says something mildly negative to you. So I think uh, it is it is really a trend. Like it is kind of like you can chart it right back to kind of the boomer generation, not to lay all the blame on the boomers, of course, but uh, but um, one other thing, there was, there was an interesting uh, discussion going on in the chat here about whether um, this is sort of a regional thing. And I know uh, I've been talking to some uh, some Mexican friends of mine, and they they say that that kind of millennial thing doesn't doesn't totally exist there. Um, like when they were talking about kind of uh, social justice warriors and stuff, they had to kind of explain what it is because it doesn't really exist so much in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I I don't I don't know. I mean, is it is it kind of more of a North American phenomenon, or is there actually like? There is a chatter mm-hmm. also in the U.S. Uh, saying we had a girl quit at the beginning of a Saturday night shift, which is very busy because she felt she was slighted in rotation. It was a very mm-hmm. mature thing to do. She's 27. Okay, that would have never had happened in my environment. Now we have slapped her no. on the face or anything, you know. <laughs> Basically, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> it's, it seems like it is largely you know coming from the united states although i you know i could see it also spreading you know within europe uh so you know it does seem uh you know kind of a, a western more western phenomenon um but you know you don't i don't think you see it as much in other societies as you do in the u.s like it's 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 really mm-hmm. really apparent within the u.s so yeah. do we want do we want to play this clip on millennials in the workplace this is uh yeah, sure Simon Sinek. It's somewhat long, but he has a lot of good things to say and a lot of good points to bring up. So we can play that and then come back and share our thoughts. Um, What's the millennial question? Apparently, millennials as a generation, which is a group of people who were born approximately uh, 1984 and after, um, uh, are tough to manage. And they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic self-interested, unfocused, lazy. But entitled is the big one. And, uh, and because they confound leadership so much, what's happening is leaders are asking the millennials, what do you want? And millennials are saying, we want to work in a place with purpose. Love that. Um, we want to make an impact, you know, whatever that means. Um, uh, we want free food and beanbags. Uh, and so somebody articulates some sort of purpose there's lots of free food and there's bean bags and yet for some reason they're still not happy and that's because um, you, the, they're missing there's, there's, a, there's a missing piece um, what I've learned is that there, I can break it down into four pieces right there are four, four things four characteristics one is parenting the other one is uh, technology the third is impatience and the fourth is environment the generation that we call the millennials, too many of them grew up um, subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies, you know, where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it, right? They were told, um, uh, some of them got into um, honors classes not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Some kids got participation medals. You got a medal for coming in last. 
right? Which the science we know is pretty clear, which is it devalues the medal and the reward for those who actually work hard. And that actually makes the person who comes in last feel embarrassed because they know they didn't deserve it. So it actually makes them feel worse, mm. right? So you take this group of people and they graduate school and they get a job and they're thrust into, an, into the real world and in an instant they find out they're not special, their moms can't get them a promotion, um, that you get nothing for coming in last, and by the way, you can't just have it because you want it, right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered. And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem to compound it is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed, right? And so everybody sounds tough. And everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you got to do. And they have no clue. Right? <laughs> so you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. Right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Right? They were dealt a bad hand. Right? Now, let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good, right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely, and so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes, it's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it, it's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. Right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down... <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing, chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe, right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains. And for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress. That's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks, right? What's happening is because we're uh, allowing unfettered access to these dopamine-producing devices and media, basically it's becoming hardwired. And what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. Their words, not mine. They will admit that many of their friendships are superficial. They will admit that their friends, that they don't count on their friends, they don't rely on their friends, they have fun with their friends, 
But they also know that their friends will cancel on them if something better comes along. Deep, meaningful relationships are not there because they never practice the skill set. And worse, they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when significant stress starts to show up in their lives, they're not turning to a person. They're turning to a device. They're turning to social media. They're turning to these things which offer temporary relief. We know, the science is clear, we know that people who spend more time on Facebook suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook. Right? These things balanced. Alcohol is not bad. Too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fun. Too much gambling is dangerous. Right? There's nothing wrong with social media and cell phones. It's the imbalance. Right? If you're sitting at dinner with your friends and you're texting somebody who's not there, that's a problem. That's an addiction. If you're sitting in a meeting with people you're supposed to be listening to and speaking and you put your phone on the table, face up or face down, I don't care, that sends a subconscious message to the room that you're, not just, you're just not that important to me right now. Right? That's what happens. And the fact that you cannot put it away is because you are addicted. Right? If you wake up and you check your phone before you say good morning to your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, you have an addiction. And like all addiction, in time, it'll destroy relationships, it'll cost time, and it'll cost money, and it'll make your life worse. Right? So you have a generation growing up with lower self-esteem that doesn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. Right? Now you add in the sense of impatience. Right? They've grown up in a world of instant gratification. You want to buy something? You go on Amazon, it arrives the next day. You want to watch a movie? Log on and watch a movie. You don't check movie times. You want to watch a TV show? Binge. You don't even have to wait week to week to week. Right? I know people who skip seasons just so they can binge at the end of the season. Right? <laughs> instant gratification. You want to go on a date? You don't even have to learn how to be like... <laughs> you don't even have to learn and practice that skill. You don't have to be the uncomfortable one who says, says yes when you mean no and says no when you mean no and yes when you... You don't have to swipe right. Bang, I'm a stud. Right? You don't even have to learn the social coping mechanisms. Right? Everything you want, you can have instantaneously. Everything you want, instant gratification. Except job satisfaction, and strength of relationships, there ain't no app for that. They are slow, meandering, uncomfortable, messy processes. And so I keep meeting these wonderful, fantastic, idealistic, hardworking, smart kids. They've just graduated school. They're in their entry-level job. I sit down with them and I go, how's it going? They go, I think I'm going to quit. I'm like, why? They're like, I'm not making an impact. I'm like, you've been here eight months. <laughs> you know? It's as if they're standing at the foot of a mountain. And they have this abstract concept called impact that they want to have in the world, which is the summit. What they don't see is the mountain. I don't care if you go up the mountain quickly or slowly, but there's still a mountain. And so what this young generation needs to learn is patience. That some things that really, really matter, like love or job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self-confidence, a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time Sometimes you can expedite pieces of it, but the overall journey is arduous and long and difficult. And if you don't ask for help and learn that skill set, you will fall off the mountain. Or you will, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, and we're already seeing it, the worst case scenario is we're seeing an increase in suicide rates. We're seeing an increase in this generation. We're seeing an increase in accidental deaths due to drug overdoses. We're seeing more and more kids drop out of school or take leaves of absence due to depression unheard of these are all this is this is really bad the best case scenario the best those are all bad cases right 
the best case scenario is you'll have an entire population growing up and going through life and just never really finding joy. They'll never really find deep, deep fulfillment in work or in life. They'll just, just waft through life and it'll be just, it's fine. How, how, how's your job? It's fine. It's the same as yesterday. How's your relationship? It's fine. Like that's, that's the best case scenario which leads me to the, the fourth point, which is environment. Which is we're taking this amazing group of young, fantastic kids who were just dealt a bad hand. It's no fault of their own. And we put them in corporate environments that care more about the numbers than they do about the kids. They care more about the short-term gains than the long-term life of this young human being. We care more about the year than the lifetime. Right? And so we are putting them in corporate environments that aren't helping them build their confidence, that aren't helping them learn the skills of cooperation, that aren't helping them overcome the challenges of a digital world and finding more balance, that isn't helping them overcome the need to have instant gratification and teach them the joys and impact and the fulfillment you get from working hard over on something for a long time that cannot be done in a month or even in a year. Yeah. So what do you guys think mm. about that? I thought it was interesting how he tied in uh, alcohol because at least when I think of alcohol as a societal issue, I think more of the, uh, I don't know, the 50s through the 80s, you know. Mm. But I realize that people have always drank and they probably always will. Um, but I guess in my mind I never connected millennials to alcoholism but i suppose that that is a thing i mean if you go out everybody's drinking so well i i think that you know his connection with alcohol was more uh in a broader point about you know this need for dopamine hits mm -hmm. and getting uh you know some kind of value out of something that has you know relatively little substance uh you know in, yeah. in terms of you know fulfillment and you know and when he talks about technology you know that was really where you know you could see a lot of millennials, you know, seeking these types of dopamine hits uh, over the the struggles that come with developing relationships. Yeah, I think so too. I think he meant alcohol use as a wider, like, seeking of dopamine. And that can include, like, all drugs, not just alcohol. Uh, sure. There's an increase in the number of heroin overdoses among this uh, age group. But again, you could mm -hmm. say that generally it is the younger generations who do get uh, kind of hooked on drugs for the most part. So is this something that is particular to millennials or is it just young people in general? Or well, even though there is a, a heroin epidemic in the U.S. Well, least. look look at, I mean, aside from, you know, actual hardcore drugs, you know, yeah. look at um, video games. Mm -hmm. You know, my generation, mm -hmm. it's 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 embarrassing because, you know, we, we grew up with nin Nintendo and, uh, you know, all, mm -hmm. all, these, all these video games. But come adulthood, you know, a lot of a lot of grown men still play video games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's it, like I said, it's embarrassing. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I think it speaks to you know that that dopamine hit that and that instant gratification uh, mm -hmm. that many mm -hmm. uh, people you know kind of seek. Yeah, I think if yeah. you if you back up the viewpoint, like you were saying, and you know, it's a, it's a metaphor for for a larger thing that's going on and it's uh in my mind it, it boils down to impatience essentially mm -hmm. you know that a lot of 
a lot of younger people now are really impatient and I catch my, you know, I'm not going to lie. I catch myself being impatient. I'll order something overnight from Amazon and I'm like, it's not <sighs> here the next day. <laughs> <laughs> well, one yeah. of the things, yeah. uh, one of the things that he mentioned that I thought was uh, interesting and, you know, we might explore a little bit is, you know, this time during adolescence uh, is stressful. Mm-hmm. But when you, know, when you think of millennials, you don't think of them as a you know particularly stressed uh, group of people, and you know I think that largely is because you know they have all these outlets where you know they can relieve that stress through you know these various uh, means of getting dopamine, dopamine hits. But the thing is with this this uh, this period is that it is kind of nature's way of um, developing you know an, uh, a person into an adult. And if they don't go through the stresses and through the challenges, then really they just delay the the uh, the process of becoming an adult. And the longer that they put it off, mm-hmm. the more harsh the lessons uh, down the road. And you know they they do come, but you know so I think uh, you know a large part of the population is in this continual uh, struggle where, where they, they don't, well, I shouldn't say a continual struggle because it's a lack of struggle, really. You know, it, it's continually putting it off, and, you know, it's still these lessons are going to come, and it's, it's just going to come crashing down, you know, when, when it does. And, you know, that, that's not a, it's not a pretty sight when, you know, a person has to face reality through it, uh, basically crashing down on them. Mm-hmm. So instead of yeah. moving... Uh, from under the umbrella of their parents and actually bonding with their peers and developing into an adult, they turn to Instagram and Facebook and they post all these pictures of themselves partying and smiling and they're even down, the, deep down they're really depressed. Um, you know, what kind of person is that, what kind of adult is that, is that gonna produce? I'm a <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the whole dopamine issue is actually kind of interesting, and I, I don't know, I don't think Simon Sinek necessarily went into it, but I, I kind of see this whole thing about patience. I mean, if you're in a situation, I mean, you know, like our, our biochemistry was kind of created for an environment that we are no longer in at this point, and we've created all these different things that can give us these instant dopamine hits that... You know, it used to be like, you know, you'd go on a hunt or something like that, or you'd go foraging for food, and you'd find it, and you get that dopamine hit. Okay, but it's not like sitting in your pocket, like, you know, less than a second away to get that little dopamine hit um, from your cell phone or, you know, from video games or whatever the case may be. So I, I think that maybe, like, having that kind of constant stimulation um, is what kind of erodes that sense of patience. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't need to wait for anything. Um, if I'm feeling a little bit down, I can check Facebook and, oh, look, that thing I posted got a bunch of likes. Wow, look at that. Suddenly I'm in a good mood again. It's like, it, it, you don't learn the strategies that are necessary to actually navigate um, in the world as it is. Another, and another reason why people are not learning strategies, it's the point that Chatter brought up. My oldest kid went away for school the first semester of this year. She's a soft in high school. She started having a lot of anxiety. And the number of kids who offered her Xanax was frightening. Mm. That's the mm. other thing. Like, mm. doctors are prescribing, you know, psychiatric medication when there is absolutely no criteria of psychiatric mm. illness just because somebody's having a tantrum, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I remember when well, I, and that ties into the the heroin thing that uh, that Tiff brought up. You know, with all the uh, oxycotton and all the other. Um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name. What are those drugs called? Like morphine and uh, opioids. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like there's the, the the opioid epidemic that kind of exists right now, and how um, you know basically there's prescription heroin out there, and it's on the street, it's uh, being prescribed left and right, and and you know then the kid kids or adults even end up turning to to heroin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I I remember when I worked in uh, human services, and uh, there was a lady I worked with, and. Uh, she had a two-year-old and, you know, who was having, like, anxiety issues. And um, they went to a, a doctor in Boston. And, you know, this guy apparently was known for prescribing Prozac to uh, mm. to toddlers. Oh. And, you know, and he, he was trying to push it on, on her. Uh, thankfully, she didn't. But, you know, you don't – I'm sure there's many, many um, parents who, you know, just take the advice of the doctor and what does that do to a developing brain? You know, it's it's the same yeah. thing with um, these the video games at, at a young age. You know, it, it, how does that affect uh, the the brain? And you know, it, it's it's it has it can, as we're seeing, I'm sure you know has uh, very detrimental effects to to the individual and to the society at large too. Well, and it also looks, it, it kind of, it's almost like the parents themselves are suffering from a bit of this millennial syndrome as well. It's like when they encounter a difficulty with their child rather than looking for, you know, a way of overcoming it or, uh, you know, a parenting strategy or something along those lines, they'll kind of quickly take the handout from the doctor of, of a prescription and they try and solve the problem with a prescription instead of actually, you know, and that's not to say that, you know, prescriptions aren't sometimes necessary and there are obviously disorders out there that require more than just, you know, some, some kind of parenting strategy. But nonetheless, it seems like uh, more and more, it's like the answer is just medicate the kid. Because other things require a lot of work. I mean, relationships exactly. require a lot of work. Uh, there was an article about millennials being less sexually active in the early 20s than the previous generation. Mm. And in some ways, that can be good because there's nothing all that great about the hookup culture. But in another way, you need to form relationships with your peers. You need to date. You need to go out and get to know people. And you'll n- n- learn how to navigate, you know, how the opposite sex acts or the same sex in a lot of cases. But um, <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of work to develop relationships with other people. And instead of doing that work, you know, Young people will get their dopamine hit from porn, or they'll get it from Tinder or Grinder or whatever kind of uh, social media apps that they use for dating, because they don't want to mm. catch feelings for somebody. They just want someone to watch Netflix and chill with. Well, it kind of yeah, goes into. Like take, um, go ahead, John. Oh, go ahead, Shane, please. <laughs> hey, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say, like the uh, the the clip you know, that we listened to, and he was talking about the ability to um, start you know a relationship and interact with people and, and kind of put yourself out there. Now, uh, you know, like Tiff, like you mentioned with the with the technology, um, you know, if you want to get laid, there's there's an app for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not to be crass, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it, it is, it's like everything is easier. It's more at your fingertips. And so there's less, uh, effort involved. Um, but I, I what I was trying to point out is I, it's, there's this dichotomy, like, 
the one thing that stood out to me in the clip that we listened to was at the beginning when he said millennials are hard to manage. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that's true. I think they might be easier to manage. Um, but I'm not exactly sure how to put into words what I'm saying. Uh, because mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're so, um, kind of in the flow of, uh, society and culture and trends, uh, that if you can control that flow, you can manage them very easily. I think maybe what he meant was they're harder to manage in like a face to face kind of situation because they're kind of precocious and like selfish. Um, <laughs> I think I think it yeah, might I think tie into the the long term as well. You know that that's what it seemed uh, to me, like you were saying that. You know they they seem on you know in in a, in a general way you know very amiable and likable and easy to get along with, but when it comes to um, having them go through the actual struggles and you know the the effort. Uh, and, you know, uh, through, through a whole cycle of, you know, difficulties and, you know, coming out on the, on the other side that they, they just don't have, uh, the tools to do that. And so in that way, you know, they might just, uh, give up and, you know, uh, go somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, maybe what he was talking about in terms of managing, like difficult to manage, it's kind of like difficult to get performance out of them in in the ways that you kind of need them to, or that the job needs them to. I mean, it's it's one thing for them to kind of like you know have their finger on the pulse and be in touch with trends and things like that, but if uh, if they aren't kind of motivated to kind of perform the tasks that they're required to, and maybe even have a bit of enthusiasm for it, um, I can see how that would be very difficult to manage, and especially if there's a sense of entitlement there and. You know, you ask them to do something and they don't want to do it. And it's uh, like pulling teeth or something like that. Like, you know, you shouldn't have to, you know, if, if you are paying an employee, they should do what they're paid to do. But um, well, it, strikes me, it strikes me that he also uh, brought up something that, you know, that he said that, you know, they want to have an impact. And that kind of strikes me as a, a narrative that many of them believe, but, you know, doesn't really know, they don't mm. really know, you know, what it means. And, you know, it's, so it's a very abstract uh, kind of excuse, yeah. I think. Um, they won't be famous. Yeah. For doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, and that kind Just of... Just followed around with a camera. He's celebrated so, for being them. Celebrities. <laughs> oh, my God. He, he, yeah, uh, that's an interesting thing, like... Oh, uh, just in regards to the celebrity and the fame thing, um, like I, I live in the Midwest, right? So the culture is a little different here, but I just got back from Los Angeles and seeing the world in like Hollywood and Beverly Hills and, and how everything is built around that, that fame aspect. But what's interesting to me about it is like, if you look back and say maybe the sixties too, but I'm primarily thinking of the fifties where you had these celebrities, you know, who were like, you know, glamorous, they were movie stars, you know, there was this, this like feel about it. Um, I'm thinking, I guess even before that, I think like, uh, you know, uh, Gregory Peck, Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, that kind of thing. Um, whereas now, uh, everybody has the opportunity to, to try to become a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, 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 the kind of, I guess, cultural weight or worth of celebrity has been spread out. So you have people on Instagram who have like 8 million followers just for posting pictures of their butt, you know, um, (laughs) it's weird. It's almost like a dilution of the culture, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
Well, it also, I mean, as far as millennials go, it's kind of like, you know, I don't think there's necessarily anything, well, I won't go out that far. I'll just say that, you know, if somebody wants to be famous, okay, fine. Whether, you know, how worthy that goal is, is questionable. But, uh, you know, back, back in the day, you know, I, I think about, you know, like you're saying in the fifties or something like that, somebody wanted to be a movie star, they would work hard for it. Like they would, they, you know, I mean, some I'm sure showed up, showed up just kind of starry-eyed in Hollywood and expected to be discovered. But there was there was certainly um, some out there, a lot out there, in fact, who would would kind of work quite hard. And you know, even when you see interviews with like some Hollywood stars and stuff like that, you can it's, sometimes you can be taken quite aback by by how hard they've actually worked to get where they are. Um, the, the impression I get from this whole millennial thing is that people want all that fame and glory, but they don't want to work for it. They want that instant gratification again. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, so it's like they, there's there's a lack of kind of a work ethic and, a, and a, a realization that to achieve your dreams, you actually have to put some effort into it. Things aren't just going to kind of fall in your lap like that uh, participation award you got for showing up. Like there's yeah. there's actually like there's there's work involved. Um, and you know that that like you're talking about the diluting of of celebrity culture just kind of dangles that in front of people's faces. I mean, there's YouTube channels out there that get millions of hits for people just watching this person play video games. Like yeah. that that's it. That that's the whole thing. This person is famous because he's good at a video game. So yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's a bizarre world. <laughs> well, I wonder if people are feeling more entitled because we're. We, I say we as like the, the grand we are paying more attention to their entitlement. You know, we're, we're feeding it mm. by playing into that. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Shane, yeah. you were going to say something there. I don't know if you guys ever heard of uh, Robert Bly. Uh, he wrote a couple of books, but one was uh, called The Sibling Society. And uh, his, his basic concept was that you know, adults regress towards adolescence. Meanwhile, uh, adolescents have no desire to become adults. And uh, he saw that sibling society as uh, losing touch with you know, the, the sacred myths and stories. Um, so, you know, the the value of, of culture, you know, is, is really absent. Um, you know, instead, you know, there's just this, uh, this kind of, you know, vapid... Um, um, modern art-esque, you know, type culture that, that doesn't really have or feed, uh, you know, uh, anything of value, you know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's just, uh, you know, this, this lack of substance that, you know, just everybody eats up and throws away. Well, that could explain the high place. rates of mood disorders and anxiety and depression that is being seen in millennials today because they really are just focusing on surface appearances and when you try to go deeper, there's really nothing there. And that leads them with this sense of alienation and isolation and loneliness that they can't really talk about because we do live in a Facebook and Instagram world. It creates more suffering. And not only mood disorders, there's also more colon cancer in millennials nowadays. Mm -hmm. Uh, as we were discussing, as you guys were having the discussion, I was actually vis visualizing how all their parents, the parents of these millennials, their health are, you know, going down the tubes, you know, people are, mm. we have different rates now, like colon cancer used to be very rare uh, with modern technology and, well, treatment, but now we have a spike again, you know, people as young as even 
30-something years old, they're having strokes, heart attacks. So that's your reality check there, too. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. not just their physical health that's suffering, like I said earlier, mental health. But then there is something called the social justice syndrome. Uh, these people that are really politically active, millennials for the most part, uh, they're suffering from what is grouped together as something called high conflict disorders, which is basically these axis two, to use the DSM uh, description, which is borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic, uh, antisocial. Uh, researchers are finding that in the millennial population that these numbers of personality disorders are on the rise. And a lot of the uh, displays that these protesters put on are actually behaviors that people with borderline personality uh, would do. Like uh, there's women who will like paint themselves with blood or this group of protesters in the UK that slice their arms so they could bleed for social justice. I mean, oh, self-harming is that's, what that's borderline crazy. personality disordered people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it, it ties in so strongly with um, identity politics and you know th- this idea mm-hmm. that you know you can become anything that you want uh, just because you want it, and it is what you say it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, it, it doesn't require effort, and that seems to underline mm-hmm. you know just this this whole uh, millennial society thing that you know it, it's 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 removed from the world of. Um, you know, putting in effort and you know taking responsibility for things, and and you know anything can come easily just because you want it to. Yeah, it's, it's actually I reinforced wonder. not just by parents, but you know they leave their helicopter parents and they go to university, and they have these safe spaces set up, which is basically just like a daycare. Yeah. They have like coloring books and beanbag chairs and all that, and they go in there, and they can you know live with their feelings no one ever challenges them no one ever encourages them to grow up and be an adult and you know face you know struggle face conflict head on instead just go into this little room and act like a child essentially so it's really unfortunate because even if these millennials aren't living in their parents basement Mm -hmm. they're still living in this extension that is the same environment Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so even when they try to get out in the world (laughs) They're the not whole, out in the world. The whole world is their parents' basement. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really... Well, in that article that you were talking about, Tiff, um, mm. the, the author actually says the idea of running to a safe space is a form of psychological regression. Mm. The safe space presents a fantasy barrier against imagined exterior evils and so encourages persecution, paranoia, and hyperfragility. These are all uh, symptoms of histrionic, borderline, and paranoid personality disorders that emerge from problems with the early child-parent bond. That makes me think about something with uh, our listeners may be familiar with the author, Nora Gedgaudis. Um, She wrote Primal Body, Primal Mind, but she talks about uh, one of the very important aspects of living in today's culture is to have a high distress tolerance. And that Hmm. phrase always kind of stuck with me because I not to be cocky, but I feel like I have a high distress tolerance. Like when things go south, you can stay calm and just kind of like deal with the situation. But a lot of people have an extremely low distress tolerance where the slightest thing just kind of sets them off. And I, I wonder, 
like what are we talking about here is this a is this, are we just having like a kids these days kind of conversation or is this a you know or is this like a cultural shift where we're seeing something new that we're not going to be able to go back from because i know that it's not everybody like so I'm, I, I was born in 1980, so I'm 36. My birthday's in August. Shane, you said 81, so you're what, 35, 36? Yeah, 36. You know, so, but, and I can honestly say that I've never felt, I mean, okay, maybe once or twice throughout my life, but not as a, not as a mode of operating that I was entitled to anything that I didn't work for. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Shane, imagine you probably felt the same way. You seem like you have a similar kind of thing going on. And, uh, so I know that, like, the millennial kind of stereotype is not everybody. So that's what makes me wonder, is it actually a cultural shift uh, to where we're going to move towards this and everything's just going to collapse because nobody actually has any skills or ability to deal with the world? Uh, Or or is it just like, you know, can we actually like get through this with some semblance of self-reliance? I I don't know whether we're going to get through this or not, but uh, when when Tiff was, you know, reading that description, you know, it made me think that it wasn't necessarily a, a diagnosis on the individuals, but more of uh, a diagnosis of you know more of like a, a social movement. And you know, if I, I I know that you know the DSM doesn't apply to uh, groups of people, but you know maybe there should be a a new uh, category. You know, where scientists do look at you know the these how these groups can manifest uh, you know the, these certain traits and characteristics that are basically pathological um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the individual is uh, you know histronic or um, bipolar or whatever um, you know in their daily lives and you know every moment mm-hmm. but you know in, in terms of uh, a more uh, wider social uh, look, it does seem that these that that these characteristics do apply. You know? Well, it seems mm-hmm. like every generation has their own problems that either are actual problems or people perceive as problems. But I think what makes it special about this time is the high technology and the social media and the actual encouragement from society as a whole for people not to grow up. I don't know if that's an actual thing or maybe I just think that it's that way, but I think, but I think this this particular social milieu does not bode well. I mean, I don't think that people who grew up with, you know, uh, easy Internet access or, you know, smartphones and all that from the day they were born really have that much of a chance to actually grow up considering that those types of things are only becoming more prevalent and it's just going to get yeah. worse. I don't know if there's any way to get beyond that. Well, it's yeah. interesting because um, one of our chatters actually said uh, generation Z or Z, depending on where you're from, uh, will react to millennials like the baby boomers reacted to the previous generation, the silent generation. And I mean, that, that, that actually would be kind of nice, you know, if they did kind of like rebel against that and kind of got back into um, reality a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if the whole technology factor actually just changes things. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if, you know, if you are kind of raised on video games and uh, social media, if uh, if the next generation following will even have a hope. Is there even going to be, I mean, you know, if millennials aren't having sex, is there even going to be a next generation? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they shouldn't reproduce. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I find myself suspicious about that statistic because there, I tell you, at least where I live, there are plenty of babies being born <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> so I don't think yeah. we have a, you know, um, an issue with that personally. I think the issue is, is more per se with the, uh, the actual mode of interaction, uh, and mm-hmm. the foundations for human interaction that are, that are developed. Um, I just read something last week that said that, uh, millennials by and large, but I'd say mostly people who were born after like 1990, they did a study and I don't, I, I wish I knew, but I don't what the actual, um, base, uh, the number of people that were involved in this study. So whether it was a thousand or 20,000, I don't know. But the result of the study was that the people interviewed, uh, the majority of them would rather watch porn than have sex with, Mm -hmm. with another person. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that certainly doesn't bode well for human connection and relationships. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Uh, so that's like one small symptom, but I think, you know, this back to what we were, when we were talking about John Taylor Gatto in a previous show in the school system in the United States, uh, in the Western world, um, this idea of artificially extended childhood, I think we're seeing the fruit of that, you know, the rotten fruit, albeit, um, of, of that process, uh, to where people don't grow up until they're in their late twenties, early thirties. And then you have people saying things like, you know, I, I totally adulted and paid my bills today. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you this, uh, here's your participation yeah <laughs> what we were talking about before just a little bit about like you know maybe the um, millennials won't won't reproduce as much it's, it's, it's an interesting topic because you know there's been a few articles up on SOT uh, lately talking about how first world countries are now having uh, significant uh, declines in uh the the birth rate Mm -hmm. and you know this is pretty much the first time you know in modern history where uh you know these uh uh you know these these modern societies you know are declining usually it's it's reserved for you know third world countries Mm -hmm. but now it's happening Mm -hmm. you know in in you know in spain and you know uh various countries in Mm -hmm. europe and you know that's uh, that is a, a you know really interesting statistic. I think mm-hmm. it is. I mean, I'm I might get crucified for saying this, but I think we could use a few less people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> what I've seen in Spain, I work in Spain. You know, it's uh, people are having a really hard time to well paying their bills, surviving on a daily basis. And they have these traditions of you start your family where you have your house, your final job or and so forth. I don't know. People are having babies when they're in their 40s, mm-hmm. 30s, very sick women that should not be, you know, they look more like they should be grandmothers. I'm exaggerating mm-hmm. just a little bit, but that's the idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of young people, they are having fertility issues. They cannot mm-hmm. conceive. And those very young who are able to conceive, they look so totally clueless that you're left like, oh, God, good luck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I could see that. I could see that having, having a real marked effect that, that we would notice on a large scale within, what, like 30, 40 years from now? Mm-hmm. Um, it approached like a children of men kind of scenario where all of a sudden mm-hmm. everybody's infertile. Yeah. 
a good point to the direction of, you know, just a, a collapsing uh, civilization. And, you know, that uh, on either a biological level or, you know, some other level that, you know, the um, people's bodies know basically not to re- reproduce. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it might not be just biological. It could also be, you know, just a, a sensible way of uh, addressing, you know, the 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 harsher realities of, of the world, too. So... Uh, what what can we do? Is there anything to be <laughs> offered to millennials? <laughs> Are they just doomed? <laughs> well, I, I think I think that question does tie into um, you know a lot of the things that you know uh, it kind of relates to one of the things that Simon Selnick brought up, which was you know the parenting, mm-hmm. which is that the the older generations basically need to grow up first. Yeah, the uh, mm-hmm. millennial, the younger generations need something to model, mm-hmm. and right now, you know, they're they're just modeling uh, adults who act like children. So, you know, breaks. first, first, yeah, the adults need to become adults. Mm-hmm. Well, we we do have another clip. This is from Jordan Peterson, and uh, we can play this. He that. offers some advice. Well, there's a deep idea in the West too. It's like. Pick up your damn suffering and bear it and try to be a good person so you don't make it worse. Well, that's a truth. You know, I read a lot about the terrible things that people have done to each other. You just cannot even imagine it. It's so awful. So you don't want to be someone like that. Now, do you have a reason to be? Yes. You have a lots of reasons to be. God, there's reasons to be resentful about your existence. Everyone you know is going to die. You know, you too. And there's going to be a fair bit of pain along the way. And lots of it's going to be unfair. It's like, yeah, no wonder you're resentful. It's like, act it out and see what happens. You make everything you're complaining about infinitely worse. There's this idea that hell is a bottomless pit, and that's because no matter how bad it is, some stupid son of a bitch like you could figure out a way to make it a lot worse. <laughs> so you think, well, what do you do about that? Well, you accept it. That's what life is like. It's suffering. That's what the religious people have always said. Life is suffering. Yes. Well, who wants to admit that? Well, just think about it. Well, so what do you do in the face of that suffering? Try to reduce it. Start with yourself. What good are you? Get yourself together for Christ's sake so that when your father dies, you're not whining away in a corner and you can help plan the funeral and you can stand up solidly so that people can rely on you. That's better. Don't be a damn victim. Of course you're a victim. Jesus, obviously. Put yourself together. And then maybe if you put yourself together, you know how to do that. You know what's wrong with you, if you'll admit it. You know there's a few things you could, like, polish up a little bit that you might even be able to manage in your insufficient present condition. And so you might shine yourself up a little bit, and then your eyes will be a little more open, and then you can shine yourself up a little bit more, and then maybe you could bring your family together instead of having them be the hateful, spiteful, neurotic, infighting batch that you're, like, doomed to spend Christmas with. So then you fix yourself up a little bit, kind of humbly, because, you know, God, you're a fixer-upper if there ever was one. 
And then you got to figure out, well, can you figure out how to make peace with your idiot brother? And probably not, because he's just as dumb as you, so how the hell are you going to manage that? And so then you maybe you get somewhere that way, and your family's sort of functioning, and you find out, well, that kind of relieved a little bit of suffering, although it reduced the opportunities for spiteful revenge, and that's kind of a pain in the neck. And so... Then you get your family together a little bit, and you're a little clued in then, at least a bit, because you've done something difficult that's actually difficult. You're wiser, and so then maybe you can put a tentative finger out beyond the family and try to change some little thing without wrecking it. It's like, our society is complex, and we teach our students that they could just fix it. It's like, go fix a military helicopter and see how far you get with that. It's like, you're going to get a do. You're like a chimp with a wrench. Whack! Oh, look, it's better. It's like, no, it's not better. Things are complicated, and to fix things is really hard. And you have to be like a, a golden tool to fix things, and you're not. So, and that's the other message of the West. It's like, how do you overcome the suffering of, the, of life? And I'm not saying it's only the message of the West. How do you overcome the suffering of life? Is be a better person. That's how you do it. Well, that's hard. It takes responsibility. And I think, you know, if you said to someone, you want to have a meaningful life? Everything you do matters. That's the definition of a meaningful life. But everything you do matters. So you're going to have to carry that with you. Or do you want to just forget about the whole meaning thing and then you don't have any responsibility because who the hell cares? And you can wander through life doing whatever you want, gratifying impulsive desires for how useful that's going to be. And you're stuck in meaninglessness, but you don't have any responsibility. Which one do you want? Well, ask yourself, which one are you pursuing? And you'll find very rapidly that it isn't the majority of your soul that's pursuing the whole meaning thing. Because, well, look what you have to do to do that. Yeah have to take on the fact that life is suffering. You have to put yourself together in the face of that. Well, that's hard. Christ, it's amazing. People can even do it. I'm stunned every day when I go outside and it isn't a, a riot with everything burning. Can, really, God, you talk to people, it's like, I knew this guy, he'd been in a motorcycle accident and it really ruined him. And he was like a linesman, you know, working on the power. And he was working with someone who had Parkinson's disease. And they had complementary inadequacies. And so two of them could do the job of one person. And so they're out there fixing power lines in the freezing cold, despite the fact that one was three quarters wrecked with a motorcycle accident and the other one had Parkinson's. It's like, that's how our civilization works. It's like, there's all these ruined people out there. They've got problems like you can't believe. Off they go to work and do things they don't even like. And look, the lights are on. My God, it's unbelievable. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And we're so ungrateful. College students, the postmodern types, they're so ungrateful. You know, they don't know that they're surrounded by just a bloody miracle. It's a miracle that all this stuff works. That all you crazy chimpanzees that don't know each other can sit in the same room for two hours sweltering away without tearing each other apart. Because that's what... <laughs> Cut off a little prematurely there, but... But I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, life is suffering. Suffering is necessary and it leads to growth. And this millennial generation knows no suffering. 
for a party. Yeah, they might be good for a party and to post some interesting pictures on Facebook or something, but can you really depend on them when the chips are down? Like he said in the, the clip, like if you know, uh, your father dies and you're in a corner wailing like a baby and nobody can depend on you to help plan the funeral, what good are you? Mm. Yeah. But, um, I like the point that he made where, you know, I'm just shocked that you go outside and it's not a riot every day. <laughs> and I guess shock, shock might be the wrong word. It's not really surprising when you take all the evidence into account, but uh, it still is like, come on, guys. Well, that may change. <laughs> it may. It, it it may the day may. may come. Then. Yeah. It'll always get worse. <laughs> There's yeah, but they may come when a meaning is forced upon us. Yes. And we are forced right. to take responsibility. Yeah. That's because amazing. right now, I mean, you can go through your whole life and not really grow up and not be responsible for anything. You could still have a job. You could live independently even. But really, what are your true responsibilities to not just yourself, but to your family or to society at large? But one day that might change. Yeah. Oh, it's it's. Well, I think reality kind of has a way of slapping you in the face at some point. You know, mm -hmm. you can only avoid reality for so long before it'll it it creeps up on you. You can't just push it out. You can count on it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it's it's very much like um, you know addicts and you know, they're people who, who who are going through recovery you know often talk about this there's there's this uh, breaking point when you know they do reach uh you know rock bottom and you mm. know they have to come to face you know what it is in their lives that's not working and you know how they basically haven't been facing reality and mm. because it, it comes and you know it slaps them in the face they uh, they might you know lose their children um or you know their jobs and you know, and things become so intense that either, you know, they check out or uh, they need to face reality. And, you know, that uh, while that might be, you know, an, an acute description uh, of, you know, certain uh, cases, it can reflect, I think, you know, our larger Western society and, you know, pretty much uh, everybody in it. You know, we mm -hmm. don't want to look at the things going on in the world. We don't want to look at, you know, what the, um, what our government, you know, might be responsible for. We don't want to look at, you know, the, you know, what, uh, how our, our own actions or inactions are you know, affecting uh, other people. And, you know, how long can that go on uh, before, you know, reality does rise up and say, enough you know mm -hmm. you need to face things mm. mm-hmm yep so or well for the non-millennials and the millennials here <laughs> what can be the starting point i know jordan peterson talks a lot about you can't change the world without changing yourself first and working on yourself first so I think mm -hmm. that is the starting point then. Mm -hmm. Just to answer my own question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. well, and and what are the ways that you go about that? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think uh, yeah. 
in part, it looks at, you know, you, you have to start looking at the, you know, very little things, uh, minor things in mm-hmm. your life that you ignore or, you know, don't take responsibility for. It might be, you know, your taxes. Mm-hmm. It might be uh, the the state of organization in your life. Uh, might yeah. be, you know, your messiness or, um, you know, Doing, those little things. Mm-hmm. Doing what the monkey doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think yeah. that I was going to say kind of along the similar lines. I think um, a lot, like a good place to start maybe would be to kind of stop going for those instant gratification dopamine hits that are maybe distorting your perception of, of reality um, to actually, you know, realize that the things that you want are actually going to take work and maybe come up with a plan of how, how to approach that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe detox from your social media for a while and see how that goes. Stop watching porn. Stop like all these little, you know, things that kind of preoccupy you and keep your brain in this chemical soup. Um, you know, try getting out of that, you know, because mm-hmm. I think that that's just a perpetual cycle that'll, will keep you kind of keep the blinders on for good. So I think, um, I think that's a start anyway. And, yeah. and a part of um, leaving those things is, is replacing them with, you know, things of, of more value. You know, doing mm-hmm. something that actually does have uh, a purpose and, you know, makes connections with others and, you know, that might be a little creative. Um, you, need, you need to put something in your life that can replace those. those yeah, even if you're not changing the world at large like social justice warriors want yeah. to do, there's still plenty in your immediate environment that you can address. You can address yourself. Uh, you can address things that need done around the house, relationships with close friends and family, and maybe that will ripple out, you know. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. that this uh, social warrior dynamic, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the this inclination that we have uh, to try to fix other things, other people outside of ourselves, mm-hmm. and you know, not really look at the more uncomfortable things that are you know wrong with us. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, it, it's no, much easier. To I think do that's that. very true. There's um, there was actually an article on Saw called uh, "Perpetually Raging About the World's Injustices." You're probably overcompensating, mm-hmm. and it was basically just saying that people kind of often will turn to these external sources of things to rage against, like this moral outrage, um, as a way of kind of dealing with their own culpability and what's going, you know, what what is is bad about their own self or their social group or something along those lines. So I, I think that's a, a very valid point. Mm-hmm. If, you rage, if you have moral outrage, what, you know, what are you ignoring in your own life? Mm-hmm. How are you responsible? You can often tell by the flavor of... Um you know, certain sentiments being expressed, uh, you know, if, if there's like this really, uh, rageful or, um, in- incredibly, not just passionate, but like, you know, over the top, overly intense, yeah, yeah. very intense, um, uh, flavor where, you know, people need to see this outward change. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, if you, if you can kind of, uh, reverse that, that, that energy and kind of like, you know, look inside it, maybe kind of fizzles some of that some of that uh, external uh energy can kind of fizzle out and you know mm-hmm. you might direct it in a more appropriate way mm. yeah so yep. that's our advice so to millennials <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the, the moral of the story 
word today is suck it up. Suck it up and grow up. <laughs> Take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, do we want to go to Zoya's health segment? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's going to be a really happy topic. It's, uh, it's about suicide. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. In the past, I already talked about the sad statistic of suicide among uh, veterinarians. Unfortunately, this problem is still very relevant, especially among young doctors who belong to the generation that doesn't have proper tools of handling reality. Here is a recording that talks about it, or why do many commit suicide. Hopefully everyone who have difficulty going through life would have strength to share their burden with others. Here is the recording. Hey everyone, I'm Anna Dolosky. Dr. Tim Hunt sees about 30 to 40 patients every day. Some are regular checkups, others accidentally ate a toy, and some are seriously ill. And all of them are furry. He, like many veterinarians, went into practice for the love of animals. But who comes to the rescue of animal healers when they themselves need healing? According to a CDC survey of 10,000 practicing veterinarians, more than one in six has considered suicide. Why? The findings aren't clear-cut, but Dr. Hunt offers some insight. Typically, the veterinary colleges are going to pick the cream of the crop, and veterinarians go in there with real high grades. They're used to being top of their class in their school. Suddenly, they get into vet school, and they're with a bunch of people that are the same as them cream of the crop. And all of a sudden the grades they have, which are always the top of the heap, are equal to everybody. So it's the first time that they get exposure to reality, in my opinion, is that. The other thing with vet school is they get in young. Young person, vet school people, usually 19 to 24 years of age, they get in there, it's a four-year program, and it's hard. So the amount of the curriculum that they go through is extensive and long and, and, and tedious and difficult. But you get done when you're very young and you're thrown into this position where you're dealing with things you don't quite anticipate. Young students coupled with perfectionism and a passion to save animal lives is oftentimes a recipe for letdown. At Dr. Hunt's office alone, he averages two euthanasias per day. Then there's the stigma of mental health issues and underlying depression. It's often thought that pets tend to help our mental health, and many veterinarians choose the profession because of the positive effects animals have on people. But with death being such a big part of the field, Dr. Hunt says that starts to wear on a person after some time. But the biggest challenge, Dr. Hunt says, isn't dealing with the animal, but rather the owner. The majority of your medicine can revolve around talking to the owner, getting a good history, telling them how things are progressing, and then ultimately you get to the end stage of an animal's life. You have to be with them when we put the animals to sleep or something else 
um, causes them to die. So it's very tough. I'm lucky because I work in a clinic that's mine. I make my decisions where if somebody comes in and wants a convenience euthanasia, it's not going to happen. Whereas if I work for someone else, I don't have that say. I have to go by that beck and call of the owner. And convenience thing means somebody moves, there's no option, they decide just to get rid of the dog. I don't agree with that. There's other options you can do. So to me, for sanity, when we do a euthanasia, it has to be a warranted thing, in my opinion. And it's equally as difficult when the decision helps bring an end to a terminal disease. Anson's vets can offer gentle deaths to patients with euthanasia. Some experts say vets themselves could see death as a way out of pain. Drug addiction happens in the veterinary medicine field probably a little bit more than every other field. That's not a, a huge difference there. Um, there's lots of good stuff I, have, I can get my hands on, but I've always stayed away from it because I know it's just too dangerous. Um, but on the whole suicide aspect, the, the ratio, I believe, is about four times greater with the veterinary field than, than the normal population and twice as much as, let's say, a dentist. So it's a scary thing. You have a rough day, stay away from the cupboard with all the drugs in it. To prevent depression and burnout, some veterinary colleges have integrated wellness programs, support groups, and tools to educate young veterinarians about the realities and challenges of the field. Recently, our own Dr. Jamie Wells discussed some of the similarities between pediatric care and veterinary care. To see that story and more, you can head to our website, acsh.org. Don't forget, while you're there, you can also sign up for your daily dose of news delivered straight to your inbox. For the Council, I'm Anna Dolosky. You think I can't those think of anything to say goats are millennials? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some millennial goats. Well, that was very interesting. Yeah. I didn't know about the high rate of suicide among vets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that was interesting too because, um, but the things that were speculated earlier that you know millennials are going to have a reality check pretty soon. Their parents are getting very sick. They're going to die soon or it's an awful disease, or it's just reality, like, yes, that's the bad world, you know, you have to kill pets, you know, not heal them, you know, kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. There, there could be, like, some overlap, too, with, uh, you know, what your expectations are, you know, in going into a helping profession. Um, you know, I'd, I'd spent some time in uh, human services, and, you know, initially, you know, you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go in and, you know, help, <laughs> help people. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you know, then then you're you come face to face with uh, you know some some of the more harsher realities uh, of of people and of the world. And if you haven't done you know any you know type of you know work on yourself, then you know it's it's kind of like the social justice warrior thing. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it can become this outlet, and it can be very destructive, uh, both you know I think towards yourself and as well as to the patient. Um, yeah. but, uh, this, uh, you know, this, this, one of the things that, you know, I was, I was thinking of, you know, in, in terms of expectations, um, you know, I think we're often, um, kind of swayed by these more dreamy, just the uh, misperceptions of, of things and, you know, it, it can have to do with like novelty mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of ties in with technology that the technology conversation we're having earlier. 
and mm -hmm. uh, this inability to kind of go through the the full cycle of things uh, to you know kind of come out on the other end, and you know it reminds me of the uh, these cycles of culture shock. Mm -hmm. So the first cycle is, is you know it's called the honeymoon. And, you know, it's, it's when you have all the highs of the novelty and, uh, you know, everything's new and wonderful and awesome. And, you know, you're, you're in this new environment and everything's beautiful. People are different. And, but, you know, this, 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 uh, this, this stage, it, uh, it eventually, you know, uh, kind of evaporates and, and you start on this decline, and then, you know, you go far below the baseline and, oh, you hate everything. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> awful. This isn't as, as all, you know, what I, what I thought it would be. Uh, the people are horrible. And, you know, I just want, I just want, you know, that newness again. Yeah. And at this stage, uh, you know, people might quit mm -hmm. and, you know, go on to something else. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, culture shock, this is where the, the actual shock is. But if you can get through that, you know, you have uh, much smaller honeymoons and then much smaller, you can call them like morning afters. <laughs> and, you know, and then it kind of like cycles out and, you you know, you just kind of like uh, live more closely to the baseline, whether it's a little higher or a little lower. Um, but, you know, th this can mm. apply to many, many things. And I think, you know, relationships, uh, uh, being at a new job, um, any, any type of new experience, but you know, what it seems like with, uh, uh, millennials, especially, and the millennial society is that, you know, once things get tough, we break that cycle and seek a new honeymoon. Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> well put. And with that, I guess we can go ahead and wrap it up since we're up on our time. So I want to thank everyone. Thanks to all the listeners and the chat room. We had a pretty active chat room today. Thanks to my co-host and our special guest co-host, Shane. Um, so join us next week for another episode of the Health and Wellness Show. And also don't forget to check out the Sunday show uh, behind the headlines or the truth perspective. So. Have a good week and a good weekend, everybody. Thanks, everybody. It's great being on. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.